A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mr. Shakespeare, I don't want to pester you. Good. Excellent news. Cheerio. I just wanted to ask you... The best way to get started as a writer is to start writing. No, really, could I just... I don't have a favourite play. I admire all my fellow dramatists equally, and yes, I do think women should be allowed to perform the female roles, as is the practice on the continent now. Please, if you'll excuse me. There are two myths about William Shakespeare. One is that hardly anything is known about his life, hence all the who-really-wrote-Shakespeare rumours, and the other is that he kept writing his extraordinary plays till the end and died, so to speak, in harness. Well, neither of these turns out to be true, and this is illustrated in a new film about the last years of the Swan of Avon called All Is True. It's directed by and stars a man who's been associated with Shakespeare most of his career. So, Kenneth Branagh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. So, do you remember your first brush with Shakespeare? I do. It was an odd one, you know. It was on television in the late 60s. I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I remember being at home, our little council house, Protestant working-class family, and on a Sunday night variety show, uh, there was a sketch by Peter Sellers, who was dressed, little did I know, as Laurence Olivier playing Richard III, and he was doing the lyrics from the Beatles song Hard Day's Night. For me, it was magnetic. I had no idea what was going on when I saw Peter Sellers going, it's been a hard day's night since I've been working like a dog. Um, and I said to my mum, what the heck is that? He said, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, Peter Sellers, he's funny, and that's him doing the Beatles, doing Laurence Olivier, doing Shakespeare. So already I knew, blimey, this Shakespeare fellow, so he's, he's kind of everywhere. And that weird, surreal experience of it uh, took me eventually to a school production, which got me hooked rather than school itself, which put me off for a bit. But in all cases, whenever I encountered it, you know, live and kicking, my first show was a terrific production of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. It, it had me hooked. I mean, you've made Hamlet, you've made Much Ado About Nothing, you've done uh, Henry V and Othello. Did you always hanker after playing the man himself? Well, uh, as I worked on the plays, I became more and more intrigued by what he regularly wrote about. So he often wrote about twins. He had twins of his own, and as we know through the film and through history, he lost his son Hamlet, who died of it would seem unknown causes when Hamlet was 11 in, in 1596. And in the latter part of Shakespeare's career, he wrote often about the loss of children, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And I was in a production of Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale, with Judy Dench, who, who went on to be in our film of All Is True. And this sense of longing and heartbreak about the loss of a child inside a marriage seemed a very strong recurring theme in Shakespeare. And the more I worked on plays that involved that, the more I wanted to go back to the life of the man to see whether this preoccupation came from the real life. So who drove this film, Ken? Was it, was it you or was it the writer Ben Elton? We had talked about uh, working together many times. We've known each other for over 30 years. Uh, ben has written a brilliant situation comedy series about Shakespeare's life called Upstart Crow. 
And uh, I was lucky enough to be a guest in one of those episodes. And I'd long fancied doing something about these last years in Shakespeare's life. We know some of the things about it, and there's some very enticing areas of um, invitation for people who might be interpreting it. So I knew Ben was really well swatted up on his Shakespeare. But I also know and have done for a long time that he, quite aside from his sort of comic brilliance and his political nous and everything, can be a, a dramatic and serious writer in the more unfamiliar sense for those who are, who are aware of his work. And so I thought that he was not only very genned up on the subject, but he would be intrigued by the idea of pursuing a subject he knows well in a dramatic fashion. So I pitched the idea to him. He came up with a treatment, and then we just kept knocking it back and forth over a series of drafts. But the bulk of the idea and the shape is unquestionably bent. I said at the beginning of this that we know quite a bit about Shakespeare, which surprised me, actually. I thought he was one of these people where you know three facts and the rest of it you're making up. But a lot of this stuff is verifiable truth, isn't it? It is, and in our film we understand that when he returns to the Stratford after the, the burning of his famous Globe Theatre fact, he goes back to be involved in two sexual scandals that uh, concerned his daughters that the town bring actions against his family for. Uh, he does indeed buy a coat of arms that requires people to call him gentlemen. He's involved in land dealings. Um, he is visited by uh, Ben Johnson as a rival. And, and generally, we see that the public record provides quite a number of facts, including the sad facts of his own son's uh, death. And, and the idea of, of a man returning to a family where he's been largely absent husband and father to face the very human consequences of what happens when you've been absent uh, and in a family that's had this major trauma just because child mortality was high at that time would not have reduced, in my view, the pain felt by the families who suffered such a loss. So to go back and do that and try and find that emotional story was an exciting thing to do. What I think is tantalizing for some people and endlessly frustrating for others is that we know only a finite amount, as you say, more than people might reckon. Mm. But um, we still don't know the whole story of William Shakespeare. And that makes not only his work, but he himself... I think, endlessly interesting. The fact is that he was away for so much of his time. He was in London. And you would think that he would have taken his family with him, but his family stayed in Stratford. And as far as I know, he visited them rarely. What, what was his relationship? Well, in the film, what is his relationship with his family? Well, we know that he, he, he left uh, Stratford around about 18, having just been married to a woman significantly older than him for the time that they were married when she was uh, pregnant. And the sense is that he at least returned to Stratford once a year. I mean, it was not unusual for people from working backgrounds to go away to make their fortune to bring or to send money back. So it wasn't, wasn't entirely unusual. But in Shakespeare's case, we have some lost years when he first left Stratford that are hard to account for in the public record. But then, you know, he becomes really the most celebrated figure of the age. And we know that some of the family, it's on record, did visit London with him later on. It's hard to know whether his wife Anne did, but it is true to say, and as far as we can, that she was unable to read and write. And that also applied to his daughter Judith. And perhaps those issues made problematic the idea of, uh, of visiting London, because as the, as the film rather poignantly in Judy Dench's beautiful performance makes clear, it's a kind of tender irony that a woman married to the greatest writer of the age can neither read nor write. 
I love that, Vet. And I have to say that Judy Gench is, as always, astonishing. And I would have thought you would have been a good 20 years too old to play it. You honestly don't notice it. And she is spectacularly good. Why did you choose her? She is ageless and she is a great Shakespearean. She lived across the street from uh, Charlotte Manor, where Sir Thomas Lucy, who features in the film, uh, lived. He has uh, two surviving uh, children. He's got these two daughters. One is the twin sister of the boy Hamnet, and the other one married a Puritan. I mean, that must have been quite an interesting um, dynamic to deal with. Yes, and I think that in Stratford itself, it, it, meant, it meant for a, uh, a very litigious society, a very gossipy society and an uncomfortable society, you know, where people uh, told tales on each other. Something, again, I think that is an example of his longevity is the difficulty with which people have trying to pin him down for his politics or his religion. Across Shakespeare, you can produce evidence from the place to suggest, well, he was definitely Protestant. No, he was definitely Catholic. No, he was definitely an agnostic. No, he was definitely an atheist. I think what he was was incredibly agile and adept at dealing with volatile social and political times, and none more so, as you point out, than Stratford itself, where all of this was happening in a small community where everyone would have known each other and where dramatic changes of fortunes happened all the time, including Shakespeare's own father, who went bankrupt and was subject to trial and censure for usury, for money lending and for property dealings. And, um, and Shakespeare himself took people to court, was involved in litigation both in London and in Stratford. So it was a society that was on edge, and, and that undercurrent of tension lies you know, inside the, the film itself. There's a wonderful scene with you and uh, Sir Ian McKellen, who plays the Earl of Southampton. He has a great line where he says, you have got the most enormous mind, but you're living the smallest of lives. That's an extraordinary dichotomy, isn't it? It is, and it's something that I think Ben felt strongly, that it's a sort of defining characteristic and encapsulates a sort of mystery about him. Uh, Flaubert said, you know, a few centuries later, uh, as an artist, it's important to be revolutionary in your creative life and bourgeois in your private life. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare seemed to have ticked the box on that one. He is not, as the later romantics were, someone like Byron was described as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. His own private life was as dangerous and as tragic and as controversial as anything he ever wrote. Whereas it seems there was a kind of familiarity, a normality, a prosaic quality to what appeared to be the preoccupation in Shakespeare's life. You know, owning property, uh, buying a coat of arms with the pretension that seems to imply for some people. The return to Stratford to be as modest man of money uh, alongside if we believe that he was responsible for most or all of these 37, 38 plays, this incredible work ethic. Not only produced the written versions of 37 plays, let's say, but you're running a theatre which is also producing, and he is producing and directing and acting in many other plays of all the other great playwrights of the age, like Christopher Marlowe and Ben Johnson. How on earth could you have time for the crazy, exotic life of the genius <laughs> that other people would prefer to have Shakespeare be. They want him to be the man that bestrode the narrow world like a colossus, living large. How else did he get his information? How did he create these stories? Well, of course, he raided the great writers of the past, is what he did, Hollinshed and Plutarch and the Norse myths and everything. But it seems at the centre, his life was resolutely ordinary, normal and human, which is also to say at one and the same time, complex, complicated, difficult and full of all the things that we recognise 
if we've been in a family and if we've had all the normal dealings with wants and desires and loss and all the rest of it. And it felt like Shakespeare's normal humanity, his, his own humanity, experienced through this relatively normal life that we're suggesting he may have had, was the workshop for his plays. The center of those plays' qualities is the ability to understand human nature and his was as diverse, complex and ordinary as most of ours. We love the idea of Shakespeare. We love the idea of this jobbing writer, the man who invented the blockbuster, the romantic comedy, the star-crossed young lovers, you know, the knockabout comedy. Just a guy who could just do all of this stuff. He was MGM. Yes, he, 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 well, he, he was, and, uh, and I think we are attracted to this idea of somebody like that who also, you know, as he talks about in his plays, holds the mirror up to nature. He also mm. makes it possible for somebody like me coming from a working-class background and going into something as mysterious and far away as the classical theatre with all its apparent privilege or sort of esoteric exclusivity or whatever. The idea that a guy that we don't even know went to grammar school could have made that journey from a tiny Warwickshire town that would have felt like a million miles away from the great metropolis of London, been a very quiet, dark place, uh, and yet makes it all the way to the big city and does that. that. That, for me, holds at least as much of a compelling, charismatic quality as the idea, which I do respect unquestionably. The circumstances suggest that it must have been somebody who really did do these things, someone like the Earl of Southampton, who travelled a great deal, or Francis Bacon, who was a Renaissance man of a different kind, or even uh, the mysterious and early passing of, of Christopher Marlowe. Those ideas are also fantastically tantalising and compelling. But, mm. but this movie was all about the story of the man from Stratford. And I see that your next film is a salute to another great English writer. This is Dame Agatha Christie. And I guess after Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile was inevitable, wasn't it? Well, you know, it's a terrific story, and it's one that she particularly liked. She was proud of it. She says in her introduction she felt that it had a reality. It certainly has at the centre of it a burning, passionate, physical desire that's spread out amongst this triangle of young people. And in Agatha Christie's own life and in exotic locations, she had very troublesome relationships that eventually led in heartbreak for her. So it feels as though, for all its um, exotic locales, that there's something very personal and sort of primal about Death on the Nile. It's the least drawing room mystery, and it's the most sleeves rolled up, primal, lustful, murder conundrum uh, amongst her books. And uh, final question, I guess. Have, have you seen the new Avengers movie yet? No, I shall be there this very weekend, uh, for sure. I read a wonderful review of it this morning in the UK Guardian, and I feel some pride that uh, when you now see the great Marvel locomotion that seems unstoppable, we were part of the first wave, really just the third movie at the beginning of that little artistic enterprise that turned out to be this worldwide phenomenon. And although the character of Thor in those movies has morphed across the subsequent ones, there was always the feeling, Kevin Feige always used to say that if we got Thor wrong, that whole idea wouldn't work because it was the character that, and the stories that create the, the most challenging tonal difficulty for a creator and for audience. But that, that very difficulty and that difference in tone, that fantastical element was going to be absolutely critical 
to sustaining variety in the subsequent films of their universe. So I know in the end, a trillion other things were at work to produce the phenomenon that, that it is, but I'm proud of our little beginning to something that uh, has given so many people so much pleasure. I was going to ask you whether you saw any comparisons between Kevin Feige and Shakespeare. Well, what I'd observe about Kevin is, A, that he loves comic books and comic book movies. He's very clear about that. And secondly, his work ethic is quite remarkable. I've never seen anybody have that combination of absolute devotion and joy in what they do and a work ethic that will leave no stone unturned. It's a dynamite combination. He wants to make the best comic book movies because he loves watching them, he loves making them. And, and he's happy to work hard to do so. That sounds a bit like Shakespeare to me, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Kenneth Branagh talking about his film All Is True, the rather sweet view of Shakespeare in retirement with terrific performances by him and Judy Dench as the first Anne Hathaway. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.